What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. On This Week in FCPA, Goldman Sachs settled. What have we learned? Team Great Women in Compliance, Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine, published their first book, Sending the Elevator Back Down. What are the lessons of JNF's investment? Tom takes a deep dive in a five-part series. The World Bank is to put more resources into evaluating compliance programs, Joshua Ray tells us on the FCPA blog. Do DPAs and MPAs encourage recidivism? Dylan Phillips also comes to us from the FCPA blog. Is there more corruption now in college sports? Pat Ford takes a look in SI.com. What is the future of financial fraud? Jonathan Karpov and the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. And will fintech be the next great enabler of the Industrial Revolution? Ingrid Vasilio Veltas takes a look on the ExpertsLeague.com. All this and more on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance and the compliance evangelist, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen. For this week in FCPA, episode 227, for the week ending October 23, 2020, the What We've Learned edition. As the great women in compliance hosts publish their first book and breaking news, Goldman Sachs settles its massive FCPA enforcement action over the 1MDB scandal. Tom and Jay are back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories which caught our eye. Jay, what say you? I say you are chomping at the bit to talk about 1MDB. So tell us about JLo's big fund and how it affects Goldman Sachs. So, Jay uh, and listeners, on uh, Thursday, October 22, the Department of Justice had a rare televised press conference to announce an FCPA settlement. We get that. I think the last one was Odebrecht back in 2016. So obviously, this was a big deal. And it was a very big deal for Goldman Sachs as they were penalized $2.921 billion, took a criminal plea for a subsidiary and uh, a a plea uh, held by a non-prosecution agreement for the parent company as well. The um, company had, or Goldman Sachs had agreed to settle with, previously with the country of Malaysia for some $2.2 billion. Uh, they also agreed uh, to uh, remediation of $600 million in profits, or profit disgorgement, I should say. Of the $2.921 billion, the following amounts are paid to the U.S. government agencies. $1.263 billion to the Department of Justice as a criminal fine and penalty. $400 million to the Securities and Exchange Commission. $154 million to the Fed. Uh, Goldman Sachs is a bank, after all. Um, the remaining monies of the differences between those figures and the 2.921 uh, are credited to either Goldman Sachs or being paid to other or uh, uh, reimbursed to others. So um, whichever way you slice it and dice it, Brian Rabbit, acting assistant attorney general, said 
This was the largest criminal fine uh, ever paid in an FCPA case. Uh, it certainly um, is eye-popping. This has been one long, massive scandal, I think, uh, 09 to 2015 or so. It's been extraordinarily and extensively well-reported. The Wall Street Journal really took the lead on reporting on uh, 1MDB. It has been a sordid, sordid story literally across the globe with uh, stories of uh, movies, of parties, of diamond rings, of handbags, and the absolute looting of the country of Malaysia by its uh, one of its former prime ministers, um, and the mysterious Mr. J. Lowe, who is still at large. Three Goldman employees were also uh, either uh, charged or have pled guilty individually. So uh, the primary Goldman employee was its um, managing director or part- partner, I should say, Tim Leisner, who headed up the operation, he's pled guilty. Roger Ng is managing director, and he is uh, going to trial in March. There's one other individual as well. So um, we're going to be slicing and dicing this one for a while. I'm sure I'll have at least a week-long podcast, or excuse me, a blog post series on it. Uh, We're going to have our first Everything Compliance Emergency video podcast tomorrow. So uh, if you are hearing this and want to see the boys Uh, Talk about that case will be on at 11 a.m. Central Time tomorrow on hopefully LinkedIn and Facebook. Um, That is if the tech works. So uh, really, Jay, you you can't really say enough about this case. It's obviously been around a long time. Uh, We uh, hopefully will. uh, Many of the facts have been reported, particularly through the criminal information on Timothy Leisner, also in the great book uh, by the Wall Street Journal reporter. So um, the, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what's in the specific settlement documents. They have not been released, so thankfully I didn't have to try to read them before this uh, podcast, but I will be reading them and uh, writing about uh, them extensively. I guess, uh, really, what are your kind of first thoughts on this one? Uh, Tom, what, what first strikes me is the amount is stunning. Uh, as we were joking before we went on air, we sa- I said, well, do you ha- are there any members of the top 10 who are less than a billion dollars? And I think we came up with a few, but I remember first getting involved and looking at the settlement uh, chart of the FCPA, like looking at a baseball ball score. And that number is just so big. Uh, and, you know, the uh, matter has gone on for such a long time that I say Tom gets two weeks to talk about it, not only one. So uh, it's, a, it's a big number. It's a big settlement. And for them to go on TV uh, means that they're sending a message out to the compliance world. Um, we know our friends Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley of the co- as co-host of the Great Woman in Compliance podcast. And now we also know them as co-authors of their debut title, which was published by CCI Press on Tuesday. And Mary and Lisa announced that they were going to donate the entire cash advance paid to them by their publisher, along with author royalties on future sales of the book, which is called Sending the Elevator Back Down, What We've Learned from Great Women in Compliance. Lisa and Mary who are the co-hosts, as we said, of the Great Women in Compliance podcast, were offered in advance against royalties of $1,000 by their publisher for the rights to their book. 
And the authors have said that they will donate equal shares of the advance in all future author royalties to both the National Association of Black Compliance and Risk Management Professionals and Dress for Success Worldwide. The book is a compilation of advice, anecdotes, encouragement shared by women who work in the compliance and ethics field all around the world. The authors received more than 100 submissions and about 50 were selected for inclusion. Quote, the spirit of this book is sharing and supporting one another, no matter what stage you are in life and your career. We think the same spirit is demonstrated in the important work done by Dress for Success and the National Association of Black Compliance and Risk Management Professionals. Many of the themes of the book touch on the experiences women have in the workplace, whether facing hurdles relating to gender, age, or race. And Mary Shirley added, not only does the book celebrate the struggles and the triumphs of women who are in the compliance and ethics field, the whole project has taken on a greater goal. What started as a podcast is now a community, and a community that can give back by widening the circle to include people who are served by these organizations. As always, we will have uh, links in the show notes for you to get the book, and we understand it's already uh, a bestseller on Amazon. So congratulations to Lisa and Mary. Uh, We rarely get a cameo treat on This Week in FCPA, but this week we do have a cameo treat, and it's the Great Women in Compliance co-hosts, Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. Ladies, first of all, welcome. Thank you. Hi, guys. Thank you so much. So the book is out. And believe me, I understand what a huge deal that is. And we wanted to to ask you guys to come on uh, to talk a little bit about the book, talk about uh, your passion around this project and your continued passion to help others through your donation of uh, royalty. So, Jay. So, Mary and Lisa, uh, now that you've been co-host of The Great Woman in Podcast, how does it feel to be co-authors and what does it mean having your book published? Um, Well, it's really been an exciting week and it's been an exciting experience. I think we have really, I'm speaking on my own behalf, but I have really enjoyed the opportunity to work with Mary in the first context of the podcast and moving on to this book, we're able to expand this community and learn so much in a different context from so many, you know, great, great women in compliance and, and that responded to us. And I think it's really just been very exciting and it's given us this opportunity for for growth um i just i I feel very very flattered and just it's been really heartwarming the the reaction we've gotten in the past week um and the book i'm supposed to get mine in from amazon today and i can't wait to hold it in my hands yeah absolutely i would echo your thoughts there lisa what an exciting opportunity for us as people who aren't authors by training or by trade uh, before and um, for for me, this project was something that was really a beacon of hope. Um, as we started out the pandemic, you'll recall that I had to go home to New Zealand uh, at quite short notice and was um, I use the word loosely trapped there for nine weeks in lockdown. And so during that time, along with my mother's um, home-cooked meals, working on the book provided a sense of normality and routine. And in that sense, it was um, kind of a lifesaver for for this period. And I'm grateful that um, while we weren't able to have a, a book launch in person, um, that the, the book came along at a year when perhaps everyone may have needed it. So I, I really wanted to ask... Uh 
obviously you started the podcast. You had the vision to start the uh, hashtag GWIC community. But it seemed to me in this project, because of the question you ask to people to make submissions, you really enlarged the community and you gave voice to women who may not have had a voice. And then you synthesized those submissions in to this book so that it, it, it really became not simply you know, a podcast format where you're talking to someone or even a, a book writing where you're talking to someone through your written word. It became really a community of sharing by women for women and compliance practitioners. Did you find that to be a part of the process or, or was that something you had in mind when you started? I think when we started out, the, um, the, the intended benefits were somewhat unknown to us at the time. And I don't think Lisa or I had anticipated just how big and, and if I may say so, popular that the, the podcast was to become. And the community that grew from that was um, an ancillary benefit that uh, we hadn't foreseen. And I have to give credit where it's due the very first person who started using the term hashtag GWIC was Jay Rosen. So um, an ally of um, the, the great woman in compliance um, gets the, the credit for, for that usage. And, and Lisa, I, I know you were about to say something. Well, I also think one of the things that I found reading the submissions in the book is that it's less about compliance and more about the people that are in the community doing work every day. Um, and it's it's relatable in a way that I think sort of transcends compliance. There's a focus on ethics and compliance and doing the right thing. Um, but there's also a how has this impacted my career? What did I learn from people, um, men and women? What brought me to where I was right now? What challenges have, have I had? And I, I when, every time I read something that was so heartfelt and really so genuine, it really really just, I learned a lot and it wasn't necessarily about compliance. And as long as we're giving credit to some of our, you know, the other people that actually do this podcast every week, we do remember that, you know, the, the first podcast episode one for GWIC, um, that was you, Tom. And, you know, we've always, you know, I still remember doing that, sitting there thinking, I, I don't know what I'm going to say or do now. And that it's turned into this and we're having this conversation is really, you know, remarkable and exciting. If I can just leverage off one of Lisa's points there about the the focus being less on substantive compliance. And I think for, for those of us who have focused a little bit more on the personal and professional development side, we tend to get a little nervous when we produce content um, that is not substantive. And I think what we've found is that that um, anxiety around that topic was uh, unfounded because there's been a huge appetite for it. And I think that's only grown uh, during the the pandemic and, and the year 2020, as people have really looked to how they can manage their self-care and their mental hygiene throughout this difficult period. Looking at the uh the stories that you have in the book and the reaction that you've gotten this week, are there any couple instances of situations that really stand out and, you know, to either warm your heart or to really talk about the impact that Quick and the book are going to be having on the compliance uh, profession? 
For me, the um, one of my favorite parts of the book is a little feature called Should I Stay or Should I Go? And um, I think that one is an important one because, uh, in my opinion, hands down, the most difficult experience someone can go through is when they are having a difficult time at work and they feel that they're in a toxic work environment. And being at a crossroads where um, you are unsure about whether to leave the company or to stay for its good points is one of the hardest decisions one can make. And sometimes it's not a decision. Sometimes we're in circumstances where we would very much like to leave, but for whatever reason, we're restrained from being able to do so. And so that um, particular feature has, um, I think, a great deal of resonance for people who have been through that situation. And I think it provides some really nice advice for anyone who might be going through that, what I would quite sincerely call trauma right now, because it is difficult and it affects every aspect of your life when you're in that situation. I'd also add that the genuine excitement that people have had in all different forms of social media or emails, I mean, I I feel like I haven't, the first time in my life, I felt like I actually can't keep up with all the nice things that are happening right now. And I feel you know, I feel badly that I haven't been able to respond, but I'm like, this is an amazing, amazing blessing in some ways to have that happen. So uh, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this segment, but we've had, it's been our privilege to have Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine, the co-authors of Sending the Elevator Back Down, the co-hosts of the Great Women in Compliance series, and the co-host of GWIC, um, hashtag GWIC. Ladies, thanks so much. The book's available on Amazon.com. We've linked to it in the show notes. Uh, check it out. And I can't wait to see what you come up with next. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jay, our next article deals with, I thought, an interesting topic, and it's entitled, What is the Future of Financial Fraud? It comes to us from Jonathan Karpoff, a professor at the University of Washington, and uh, on the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. And it's a um, kind of a summary of a longer article that he has written. But I was really intrigued that he said that while fraud may be up, uh, the tools to combat fraud are also up. And by that, he meant AI, machine learning, data analytics, um, and, and those types of tools. And what really struck me, Jay, was that's exactly what the compliance practitioner, the situation the compliance professional finds himself in. We, we talked, perhaps even laughed a little bit about JNF, but now with the tools that are available to them, compliance practitioners should be able to have a more robust ability to monitor inside of a corporation. And the Department of Justice and specifically SEC have said, guys, we're data mining your information. If we can do it, you ought to be able to do it. Um, in fact, that's what led to the $920 million fine against J.P. Morgan was data analytics capability of the SEC. So uh, I thought that was interesting. I, I wanted to link to it because it really shows the, the not tangential relationship, but almost direct relationship between fraud and anti-corruption compliance. And for our last article uh, today, we have something coming to us from the expertsleague.com. It's written by Ingrid Vasilio Feltes, and it's entitled Fintech, the Great Enabler of the Next Industrial Revolution. We're currently on the verge of the next industrial revolution and are witnessing an unprecedented convergence of advances in technology and scientific discoveries. 
There are numerous complex factors that will drive the next industrial revolution, and fintech is one of them. The global fintech market is expected to reach $22.6 billion by 2025, with a compounded annual growth of 23.37%. Experts believe that the key innovative technologies such as blockchain, AI, quantum or cloud computing, 5G, Web 3.0, will be major influencers and the major tech companies' key players in the fintech ecosystem. Why fintech? But compared with other contenders of the industrial revolution, one could argue that fintech is a gateway for all emerging technologies, the conduit towards financial inclusion, and paving the way towards building a revitalized post-pandemic economy. Certainly all these tools, Web 3.0, IoT, Faster 5G, and 6G, will play an important role as they are the foundational elements of building required infrastructure in a highly visual, digitalized, and hyper-connected world. As highlighted by many experts, the enthusiasm of leveraging these novel technologies and the excitement of the tremendous opportunities they can offer has to be complemented with a mindful deployment to ensure sure that we uphold by core ethical principles such as beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. By collaborating globally, we must all strive to bridge the digital divide, enhance access to clean water, food, and shelter. Opportunities through the creation of digital identities, they offer simplified access to the banking system, development of interoperable electronic payment platforms, and innovative financial markets. Here's three specific areas to look at. Healthcare and life sciences. Due to the current pandemic, we find ourselves at the crossroad of disruption in healthcare and life sciences. By infusing all fintech advances into strategic reform of how we fund healthcare delivery, research, and development of new precision medical solutions. Education has been ripe for disruption for many years. However, the current isolation requirements have caused breaking point and stakeholders are forced to redesign the way we fund and provide access to education. And smart cities, they're one of the best illustrations of the combined power of fintech and all other emerging technologies. In several parts of the world where smart cities have been built, there is, is evidence how mobile-first and digital banking can exponentially promote the development of smart transportation and architecture. Future directions, stakeholders within the fintech ecosystem need to collaborate and develop legal and regulatory frameworks that are harmonized with the pace of technological development. Only by fully leveraging the benefits of a hyper-connected world can we build a strong economy that is resilient and sustainable. Jay, we had uh, a great Everything Compliance podcast, which posted on Thursday. In this episode, we considered uh, what enforcement uh, might look like from a variety of angles under either a Trump administration or a Biden administration. Over on the Compliance Podcast Network, we're continuing our exploration of compliance for business ventures. Uh, this month is sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. Thank you again. On Monday, we uh, I looked at tying all of the information together for joint ventures. Tuesday is know your customer from the business perspective. Thursday, excuse me, Wednesday, corporate controller and business ventures. On Thursday, financial review of your business venture partner. And on Friday, distributors as business venture partners. I've got some. Uh, I've got two very exciting webinars coming up next week. 
Uh, I hope you will join myself and Sam Silverstein, the godfather of accountability, as we have an executive forum on ethics and accountability on Thursday, October 28th uh, from 12 to 1 Central. On uh, the 27th, or excuse me, the 26th, uh, uh, on Tuesday, rather, um, I'm going to join a panel uh, for a definitive podcast on the future of due diligence, third-party risk in the era of COVID-19. And finally, you want to say a little bit about uh, Navex Next? Sure. Uh, on Thursday, uh, October 22nd, the day we taped this podcast, Navex had their next ninth annual risk and compliance virtual conference. Uh, it's called Beyond the Moment, and it broadcast uh, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, East Coast time. There will be a way to listen to a replay, and we've got a link to it on the show notes. I was able to uh, sit into the uh, opening session with uh, Carrie Penman and with uh, – I don't know. I, it was either Ben or Jerry from Ben and Jerry's, but it was a real great interview. He talked a lot about finding the company, uh, social uh, responsibility, and how uh, it's interesting to work for a company now where you do not have a stake in it and you don't have anybody reporting up to you. And uh, he suggested that you should try that at least once in your life. So uh, great stuff as usual from Navex, uh, the coolest guy in compliance. Matt Kelly is on several of the sessions, and we uh, suggest you check it out. Uh, Jay, this has been a, a great episode. I really enjoyed having uh, the great women in compliance ladies on. And um, we went a little bit longer than normal, but uh, that's okay, too. So you want to take us home? Sure. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for This Week in FCPA episode 227 for the week ending October 23rd, 2020, the What We've Learned edition. Uh, as always, we hope that you will be safe, be healthy, have a great weekend. We thank you for spending your time with us, and we'll get you back next week and see if we can find another FCPA settlement, one that might even be bigger than Goldman Sachs, but probably not. Take care and be well. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If there are any topics you'd like Jay and I to take up, please let us know. Also, you can use the SpeakPipe app on the Compliance Podcast Network site. If you need to reach me, I'm at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Jay's at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Thanks again for listening. I hope you'll join us again next week where Jay and I take up some of the week's top stories which caught our eye on This Week in FCPA, which is a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.